The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm delighted this week to welcome as my guest, Ayelet Gunda Goshen, whose new novel is The Wolf Hunt. Now, Ayelet, welcome. The Wolf Hunt, it's kind of, well, it's twisty. And I'm concerned that if I sum up the setting, I'm going to give some unwanted spoilers. So I want to kind of start by asking you to sort of set out for our listeners sort of roughly what the setup of The Wolf Hunt is. Just to make sure you're aware of the fact that there's nothing more terrifying to an author than this specific question, right? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just conscious that sometimes I'll go, like I had an interview with Mick Heron where I said, well, in this book, this character's not there. And he went, what? You've ruined it for everyone. So <laughs> I'm conscious of that. <laughs> I will say that the setting is, it's an Israeli family relocating to the Silicon Valley. And the mother really wants to get out of Israel. She wants her child to grow away from the Israeli, from the Middle East madness. And she's sure that she brought him somewhere safe. But right at the beginning of the novel, there is a terror attack at a local synagogue. And the Israeli mother starts to fear that while she wanted her son to be safe and not in Israel, she just moved him to a different sort of madness, which is the American madness. She later learns that he was bullied at school by a Muslim black uh, boy. And when this boy dies at a class party, she starts to feel that her own child might have been involved in his death. So she shifts from worrying about the possibility of her child being harmed by others into asking herself, could it be that her own child is, is a predator? Into asking herself, how much do I really know my own child? That's well summed up. And I'm interested in the point at which you, you kind of half answer that it's framed by this attack at the synagogue. I mean, one could see the central story of the wolf hunt, this question of what happened at the party that caused this boy Jamal to die. Could have been written entirely without that. But you've got this pre-credit sequence almost where there's a straightforward anti-Semitic attack on the synagogue. What was it that made you want to frame it that way? And how does that kind of impact the shape of the rest of the story? It's a good question because I actually ask myself, is it an Israeli novel or is it a universal question about parenthood, about how much do I really know my own child? And in that aspect, it doesn't have to be the story of a Jewish boy and a Muslim boy. I think every parent knows this experience of looking at your own child as if he's a, a riddle that you're trying to solve. So I think this is true in the psychological level for, for every family. The idea that inside the own family, there's this huge mystery called you know our, our children and how we look at them as if really like the biggest mystery in our lives. But at the same time, I was very curious about this sociological issue, at least in Israel and also in America, when I lived in America, of fear. I think as, as a Jewish author, I see it very often, how much fear of being victims we have as Jews and how this fear can sometimes lead us to be more aggressive towards others 
rather than to be more compassionate to others. So when I started this novel with the terror attack, which is based on a real terror attack that happened in America in 2018, a real massacre that happened in a synagogue, I was curious to ask what happens a moment after the massacre is over? What happens to the people who are victims? Will they be more compassionate to others because they know what it means to be a victim? Or could it be that the fear of becoming a victim is a huge motivator to become an aggressor yourself? You said you've lived in America. And was that when that synagogue attack itself took place? I mean, were you there in 2018? Is Silicon Valley, is Cal- that bit of California, was that your own stomping ground when you were in the States? I was there in um not during the terror attack, but just before that, if I remember correctly, I was teaching at San Francisco State University and living in the Silicon Valley. And I remember this fear among um, American Jews of anti-Semitism. I remember this feeling of potential terror around. It's not like you're afraid all the time, but you always have the possibility of something bad happening. Like this possibility is, is lurking and you always have it in the back of your mind. And then when something like this suddenly happens in reality, it's like your your worst nightmare becoming reality all of a sudden. And for Lila, your protagonist, she, I hope I'm pronouncing her right, she has a whole thing at the beginning of the book about people mispronouncing her name, seems obviously she's experienced fear, the sort of fear you describe, both in Israel and in America. And they're very different, aren't they? I mean, there's a kind of... The experience of anti-Semitism for American or diaspora Jews is different than that in Israel. Is that fair to put? Or are they exactly the same in just different physical forms? No, I, I think you're right. I think these are different sorts of fear. In Israel, you have the fear of a war, of a terror attack, of missiles falling, but you don't struggle with your Jewish identity. You don't have to affiliate to maintain a Jewish identity. You're simply Jewish. You know, that's the air you breathe in Israel. I think when you're outside of Israel, then being Jewish actually means something because you meet people who have a problem with you as a Jew, which is something that you usually won't meet in Israel. I'll give you an example. When I was touring with the novel in Germany, I saw a graffiti of a swastika. And at first, I wasn't very concerned about it because we see graffitis of swastika in Israel as well. Teenagers do them when they want to shock their parents or the teachers. So you can see swastikas. That's kind of extraordinary. I I think that in Israel, it'd be such a deep taboo that... But, you know, as a teenager, one of the things you want to do is to find a taboo and smash it, right? So just as kids here at high school, you know, they, they do sex portraits on the on the desk to shock the teacher. They can also draw a swastika on the desk to shock the teacher. But it wouldn't be so offensive because deep down inside, the teacher knows that her student, her Israeli Jewish student is not a Nazi. She knows that he's doing it to shock her. But when you see the same graffiti in Germany as I did, then you're not telling yourself, okay, here's this annoying teenager who wants to be provocative. You're suddenly thinking, this is not a Jewish teenager being provocative. The guy who who sprayed it here in Germany actually meant it. And it's a completely different experience to see it in Israel as provocating against the taboo and to see it in Germany 
as a sign of, of real hatred. I think this was the moment when I saw it in Germany that I realized how privileged I am to live in Israel. Because in Israel, if I saw this graffiti, it wouldn't shock my world. In Germany, when I saw it, it was really disturbing. Uh, within the Californian community that Lilak and her son Sam and her husband Michal live, there seems to be a kind of sociological divide as well between the American Jewish people and the Israeli kind of immigrants. How does that manifest itself? These are two very different societies. The Israeli tech society in the Silicon Valley is like a closed village of uh, hummus. You know, everyone is talking about where can you find a proper hummus? This is the first question you ask someone when you meet an Israeli in, in San Francisco. Did you find hummus already? And I don't think the American Jews are as obsessed as hummus as, as we are. They have other problems. But what's interesting for me was the moment when everyone unite. When there is a fear of an anti-Semitic act, that's what keeps everyone together. It's almost as if anti-Semitism is the glue that keeps those two societies linked to one another. And I think it's a sad thing to say how much our identity is defined by hatred, by the hatred of others. Yeah, that's a grisly thought. The hatred that runs through this book, and there are lots of hatreds and aggressions or possible aggressions in the book. It's quite like a thriller. Do you think of yourself as having written a thriller or as using the tools of a thriller to write something different? That's a very interesting question because I think I like to use the mechanism of a thriller to try and explore the big question of human relationships. Like the thriller, I think, is like, you know, a Trojan horse. If you see a Trojan horse and you say, ah, it's just a thriller, okay, I, I can take it in. I can lower down my defenses and take it in. But then when it's after the walls, then I think whatever hides inside the thriller can jump out and, and get you. So for me, when I think about it, every family is a bit like a thriller. Every father-child relationship has something of a thriller in it because, you know, there's not necessarily a, a dead body involved as there is in this novel, but there's always this tension. You know, there's always this question of how much do I really know the people I love the most? And that's a, you know, that's a domestic thriller. But I also think if you look at the first crime fiction, at the first literary detective, for me, I always think it's Oedipus, like King Oedipus. <laughs> because if you think about Oedipus, no, seriously, think about it. Yeah, no, no, you tell me, I'm nodding in agreement rather than in wonderment. <laughs> we, you know, like there's a dead body, somebody murdered the king, and then Oedipus has this, he's launching this investigation, right? He's investigating the witnesses. And he's certain, like every detective, the, the real hubris, the, the real sin of pride, is that you're certain that the evil is out there, that somewhere in the dark streets of Tebai lies the person capable of killing. And this person is definitely not me, because I'm a good guy. And in Oedipus, and that's a spoiler alert I'm giving you right now, but in <laughs> the right. end of Oedipus... Spoilers it, on Oedipus are okay. Sabal. So by the end of the text, by the end of the play, you realize that when you're looking for the wolf out there, you're missing something, that the blind spot is the wolf within. And I think in Oedipus, this thriller mechanism, we use this dead body of the king 
to ask a much deeper psychological question about the sources of aggressiveness inside each one of us and how we always project it to external evil, to the enemy, to the guys behind the border, instead of acknowledging our own aggressiveness. So coming back to your question, yeah, I feel that if you use the mechanisms of the thriller, you can actually explore the most fundamental truth of our psychological existence. Actually, it's a real parenthesis. I, I wondered, it seemed to me that when the book opens, you've got Lila contemplating this boy she's given birth to and has nurtured and what he, what he looked like as a baby. And she's thinking, could these be the, you know, the hands, the eyes, the face of a killer? Is there, there a sort of ancestry here? I mean, it made, made me think at first of Lionel Shriver's novel, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Is that a sort of book that you read and that was in the background of your mind? Um, actually, this part was based on, on a very disturbing experience that I had as a mother. I don't know if you ever experienced it. I was holding my, my newborn and they have such tiny fingers. I remember like holding the, the, the fingers and looking and it started with this really sweet notion of thought. You know, I thought such tiny, delicate little fingers and how I know nothing about what will he choose to do with his fingers as he grows up. And I thought maybe he'll play the piano with the fingers and maybe he'll write the way I write with these fingers. And then I thought, yeah, but maybe he'll pull a trigger with the fingers because, you know, he grows up in Israel. So he's supposed to be recruited to the army in 18. And all of a sudden, when I, I had this thought about the truth is that this boy just came out of, of my own body and I know everything about him. But as he grows up, how much power do I have over what he chooses to do with his hands? If he chooses to use them to, to build something or, or to kill someone. And I don't know, I hope not all mothers have this thoughts when they hold their newborns. Maybe I'm, I'm a bit messed up with this, but I, I remember thinking it, and this is something I brought into the novel, the experience of a woman, of a mother, who realizes that the fact that she brought life into this world doesn't mean that this life is any way under her control. Yeah. Now, a point you make that I want to return to is this, this when you say, you know, the fear, the experience of being under threat as a Jew or as an Israeli Jew is one that, that can have its outlet in aggression. And I know that's quite a kind of, sensitive point because one of the great issues that that Israeli people and Zionists tend to say is like the idea that the experience of Jews in the middle of the 20th century caused them to visit that sort of oppression on others do you i mean are you aware of that being a kind of third rail of a of a conversation very much i would start from the individual level and i would go out to the wider level to the national level when I started this novel, it was based not on the national question of uh, could Jews become the aggressors of history because we were the victims of history. I started from the, the most private experience of taking my own girl to preschool. And I saw her when we entered the preschool, the, the kindergarten, and I noticed how paranoid I am. I noticed that this is the first day of school. I'm bringing her in. And I'm looking at all the other kids as potential psychopaths. Was this in the States or in Tel Aviv? No, it was still in Tel Aviv. It was before we moved to the States. 
So this is Tel Aviv, first day of school. All the kids are dressed up really nice, all very sweet. And I'm entering the preschool and I'm looking at the little three-year-old girl thinking, which one of you is going to harm one, my daughter? Which one of the sweet little boys here is going to do something to her the moment I, I leave the class? I was looking at them like trying to identify the wolf that is going to harm my little cub. And then when I left the preschool, I realized that all the other mothers and fathers actually have the same look in their eyes. We were all searching. We were all scanning the faces of the other kids, trying to identify the potential wolf. And that was the moment that shocked me because I thought, how come all of us are so afraid that there's a wolf here that might harm our cubs? None of us steps to consider the possibility that our own child might be the wolf. And when I came back home from the preschool that day, I told it to my partner. And I asked him, say that you had a choice. You don't have this choice in life, but say that you had a choice. You had a choice between our little girl right now in the preschool being bullied by someone or between her being the bully. Right now we're at home and she's there in the preschool and she's saying something really nasty to another girl in order to feel good about herself. What would you rather have? And you know, I thought it was a really good question, but he looked at me and he told me, what kind of mother are you? Of course I prefer my child to be, to be the aggressor than to have her as a victim. Yes, and you've got this, what, what? that conversation's in the book, isn't it? Yeah. No, it is. I took it as is and I just put it into the book. At the real moment, I told him, this is not you speaking. This is your grandfather who was a Holocaust survivor. And he's speaking outside from your mouth right now. You're talking as a third generation to the Shoah, to the Holocaust. And you would prefer your daughter in Tel Aviv, even though this is not, the Holocaust is over. This is over. But you still think that the preschool in Tel Aviv is a manifestation of Auschwitz. You still think that if she's a victim for a second, then she will be slaughtered. And then we had a huge fight, which I won't go into. But this is really <laughs> the moment that I, I thought how the psychological or the individual level is so tightly linked to the historical perspective that you asked about to this notion of never again. So much that, yeah, I think in Israel, many people would rather educate their child to be a bully rather than risk the possibility of him being a victim. May I ask you, how do you think it is in the UK? Like how would a typical UK dad would respond to this question? I don't know. I'm a great wet milk toast. So I'd probably, I'd much rather my child was some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. But I think if my child came home from school with a bloody nose, I might change my view on that quite quickly. You know, the, the, <laughs> the, the conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. So I, I think it's probably. I wonder whether there's a, you know, a historical talk to it for Jewish and Israeli people. Do you think that, there's a gender talk to it as well? Do you think perhaps men would rather have their child man up and fight, while women would feel more comfortable in the position of like being a victim, but at least knowing that you're pure, that you weren't the aggressor? That's a good question. I think it's one you're better equipped to answer than I am as a clinical psychologist in your day job. How does that relate to your fiction writing? Is it just a new toolkit or do you have to sort of put some of it aside? I think 
it's very tightly connected when it comes to the basic question. I think the basic question in psychotherapy, and for me as an author, is the question of why is it that people do what they do? It's about trying to understand rather than judging. Because everyday life, you know, we judge all the time. We hear that a child bullied another child and we say this child is a bad child or this child is a monster or, you know, we just put the title and move on. And as a psychologist, I don't have this privilege of saying, you know, this child is a monster and move on because usually I get these monsters to be treated. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, instead of judging him, I have to try and understand what make one child molest another child, what makes one child offend or abuse another child. And then instead of judging, you have to go to this hard work of trying to understand. And I think this is what I do when I was working in a locked ward in a, in a youth department, in a mental health hospital in Israel. So quite often the kids who are hospitalized did terrible things before they were hospitalized, but you won't be able to help them if you'll just tell them what you did was terrible. They have their parents and their teacher, everyone say that. Your job is, is to try to do something completely different. Your job is to try and understand what makes a child that was once a baby, pure of, of evil, what makes him do such a thing? And is it possible to change this course so that someone who already did something like that won't necessarily have to repeat it again and again till the end of time? No. This dynamic, this fear and this aggression, it's quite sort of literalized in the novel, in the figure of Uri, who's the Bidak's son, Sam. You know, after the synagogue attack, he goes off to self-defense classes and there's this very kind of memorable thing on the wall that's, I, I can't remember where it's a quote from, but you'll be able to tell me it's somewhere in the Bible, I think, or the Torah, that says, you know, if somebody rises up to kill you, strike him dead before he gets the chance, a paraphrase. But can you tell me a bit about how Uri and Uri's self-defence class shaped the novel for you or, or what the significance of that thread was? So, yeah, at the beginning of the novel, there's the terror attack, and this leads Lilach, the Israeli mother, she wants her child to go and study self-defence because she doesn't want him to be the victim of the next terror attack. And as he goes to the self-defense class, he doesn't want to go at first because, you know, there's this kids who learn karate and the kids who, who go to chess. And he's the, the kind of kids who, who'd rather learn chess than learn how to beat other kids. But then when he gets there, for the first time in his life, he feels part of something bigger than himself, which is something about, I think, militants that people sometimes fail to understand that it's not necessarily about the joy of killing other people as much as it is about the joy of belonging to a group of other people, of not feeling alone anymore. We see it in cults. We see it with militians. And Adam finds his sense of belonging in this self-defense class. He doesn't want to be a victim. He doesn't want to be the Jew that runs away when they slaughter in the synagogue. He wants to be a Zionist macho man. He wants to be the one who kills the, the terrorist. And I think there is something that I can very much understand and, and relate to. I, I think every young boy has this fantasy of, you know, killing the bad guys and suddenly he has bad guys to kill. But what happens is that it becomes 
too appealing, too tempting to find uh, another enemy and to prove that now you're actually re- uh, ready and capable of, of fighting. And this is the moment when it stops being a drill, it stops being a game and becomes reality. This is the moment when everything starts to go wrong. And Uri is the instructor. He's the one teaching the Israeli kids self-defense. And he's really this Israeli macho man, you know, with the, like the James Bond Israeli style, with the Mossad uh, background. And there is something very sexy, I think, about this sort of manhood, but also something very dangerous about him, especially because there is something wounded inside of him as well. He was a very successful warrior at the Israeli Defense Army. He was later a very successful commander. He had this feeling that he could do everything he wants. And suddenly he can. Suddenly he's in the U.S. and he's not as successful as he wanted to be. And it drives him a little bit mad. And his relationship with Adam, there's a sort of piercing moment, which I think isn't to do with aggression. It's more to do with this belonging thing you talk about, where he is able to comfort Adam when Lilach is not. There is something really not fair in being a mother, I feel, because you bring life into this world and then you are condemned to being abandoned uh, in favor of other people that your children look up to, that they think that they're much more interesting or cool or important than you are. And you're left alone with your heart broken as they go to someone who has this interesting... uh, atmosphere around him and he's interesting simply because he's not you and this is what happens to Lilach her child wants to separate from her he doesn't want to be in the cuddle hug of his mommy he wants to be a real man with other men he wants to be all this type of masculinity that Lilach resents this is what and who he wants to be right now and she's being actually dumped by the, the boy she loves the most. And this is not her partner. This is her own child. And he's preferring Uri over her. And I think one reading that I wanted to enable for the reader is this question of, is Adam really involved in the death of Jamal? Or could it be that Lilach is losing it because she's losing her child because the separation is so traumatic for her? Well, that is, I mean, the book, again, not to give spoilers, there is a sort of ambivalence or a, an openness to interpretation that goes right up to the end. I mean, in your inner heart, do you feel you know what actually happened? Very much so. I think I would. I, feel, I would feel like uh, I'm bluffing if I, if I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to to send it to print before I have a very clear vision of what happened. But the real question for me. And this has a lot to do with the way I chose to construct the ending. Was not about Adam. It was about Lilach. It seems like the entire book is about Adam. Did Adam kill Jamal? Was he involved in Jamal's death or wasn't he? But I think the bigger question for me is, what would Lilach rather do as a mother? Would she prefer to protect her child at all costs, even if it means that another child will be dead, she will prefer to, to protect her child? Or does she feel she has the moral responsibility, not just for her own kid, but a, a wider 
responsibility. So for me, it's not just about is Adam capable of killing. It's also about is Lilach capable of assisting a crime by choosing not to know, for instance, by choosing not to find out the truth because she just doesn't want to handle it. Because the entire novel is built, as you said, as a, as a thriller, and the mother is like the detective who wants to know the truth. But I think, and this I'm saying it also as a psychologist, when people say, I want to know the truth, there's also this question of, do you really want to know the truth? Or could it be that just when we finally reach the truth, that's the moment you'll drop out of therapy. That's the moment she'll drop out of her investigation. Absolutely. But, you know, I almost had a question framed about, you know, who's the novel actually about? And I think you've, you've answered that very well. As we've touched on, the sort of dynamics of this individual story do have an inescapable kind of political resonance. And do you feel as an Israeli writer, you kind of can't escape politics or you can't escape the national story? I mean, how easy is it, if you like, to write as an Israeli novelist, the stereotypical kind of Western bounded novel where it's just about a family, it's just about an affair or a child growing up or whatever? That's a good question that I struggle with quite a lot, because on the one hand, I really feel that literature, it's not, or a story is not like a camel or a donkey. It's not an animal that's supposed to carry on its back the entire sum of your political agenda. Okay, I hate it when people use a plot really like a donkey that has to carry more and more sacks and bags of the the author's opinions. Because I think, you know, literature, it should be like a wild animal, like a Mustang horse. It should run wherever it wants and it should be free. So I don't feel like my novels have to carry the entire amount of my political agendas on their back. I feel like the story has to be a story. And I hate it when I travel abroad and the only thing people ask me about is either the Holocaust or the occupation. As if you cannot have anything else going inside your mind or your heart rather than Jews killing or being killed. And I do feel entitled to have other fields of interest, which are not the Holocaust or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, yeah, I want to be able to write a story set on Mars or a boy meets girl that has nothing to do with politics on the one hand. On the other hand, I feel that as a Jewish and as an Israeli author, though the story has to be free, and to be led only by the passion of the story, the public existence has to relate to what's going out right now in my country. Otherwise, you're choosing to be blind to the reality around you. And I feel this is morally wrong. So I think literature should be about whatever you feel like, but your public uh, appearance has to relate to the ethical questions on the table. And we have a whole lot of ethical questions on the table right now in Israel. Well, this leads on because we briefly had to postpone this because your, of your involvement in the protests. I just want to ask, again, was that a, a sense of using your status in Israel as you know, one of the preeminent novelists, saying, it's my duty to get involved in these protests? What is your involvement in in the current protests, and where do you think we are? Um, actually, we had to postpone, not because my duties as an author, but because of my duties as a psychologist. I'm a chief psychologist at a clinic at a mental health hospital, and I was organizing 
strike of my sector. So that mental health professional would go on strike against the judicial uh, overhaul. So this was the reason why we had to postpone. And I think it's crucial, you know, we see how mental health professionals usually try to remain neutral because we don't want to hurt our patients by being too political. But then there's a moment when you're saying we're hurting our patients if we're not being political right now. Because if the judicial coup succeeds, then our patients will be the first one to get hurt. So I see, it again, my job as a psychologist and my, my job as an author, you try to put into words what you see in front of you. You do it as a psychologist. When people avoid talking about something essential, you have to talk about it. That's what psychotherapy is about, right? It's about talking about the blind spots, talking about the things that we rather leave hidden. And literature, in a way, is the same, right? You want to talk in literature about the blind spots, about the things we want to leave hidden. And then I feel taking it to politics is the next step. We have to talk in politics about our government's blind spot and about the things that Netanyahu prefers to leave hidden. So I think it's all connected. Is your experience as a novelist in Israel, I mean, you've said, you know, you go to Germany, everyone wants to ask you about the Holocaust or about the occupation. Is it kind of within Israel, the Israeli market and Israeli readers, are you read or understood or received or talked about in a completely different way? I think it, it really depends where. One of the things that really shocked me was how well this specific novel was received by the Israeli right. When the reviews went out in the Israeli right-wing papers, they, in, in a way, they embraced the novel. And I thought, Either I did something wrong or they read it wrong, or could it be that, you know, it can be read as a story, as you said, about a relationship between a mother and a child, and not necessarily as a political novel about, you know, fear and what it leads us to doing in, in the political level. But I was, I must say, I was pretty shocked by the way it was received in, in the Israeli right. Did you want to write in and say, I mean, sorry, I'd like a worse review, please. <laughs> No, but I, I remember I thought, you know, you write a novel and then somebody reads it and he can read it entirely different. And it's always a bit shocking. Maybe it's the same as the experience with your child. You create him, but you have no power over <laughs> what he'll do when he's out there. I, maybe it's the same with the novel. Yeah. Now, the judicial coup you talked about, if it does go through, you, you have a line, a sort of resident line this from Bilach, where she says, I loved Israel. I loved it the way a woman loves her abusive husband but understands that she has to get away from him in order to save her children. Is that line one that you would agree with or one that comes from your heart? That's a very painful question that you're asking right now, because when I wrote this novel, I was much more, there was a bigger gap between me and Lila. I chose to raise my children in Tel Aviv. I didn't choose to stay in, in the US. But the last few months in Israel were... I shift, you know, I shift between feeling that I don't want to raise my children in a place where you're afraid to go out to the street to protest because now the police is so aggressive against the protest that I wouldn't take my children to a demonstration in Tel Aviv. And then you're thinking, is it still a democracy if I'm afraid to take my own kids to a peaceful rally or, or am I raising them in a country which is dangerous for them? to live in. So these are the moments when I do feel like 
my protagonist. There are also other moments. There are moments when I'm thinking, no, our society, civil society is finally waking up. People are finally realizing that democracy isn't a given fact, that you, ha you have to fight in order to keep it alive. And these are moments in which I'm more optimistic than I was 10 years ago, when, when I hope that what we started now against the, the judicial coup will continue also against the occupation, that we can finally build here a country that we can be proud of. So you, it really depends on, on the day in which you're asking me. The wolf hunt is out imminently. Ayelet Gundagoshan, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for having me.